join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, God incarnate, we come before the pages of your sacred word given for our instruction, for true life, for us to see the glories of following the path of redemption. Press your word into our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may follow you more nearly and love you more dearly. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over Thanksgiving uh, time, uh, where I teach at Westminster, a number of college students would uh, come back for Thanksgiving break, would stop by classrooms at Westminster that we had had before and uh, would just touch base with us, let us know how they were getting along. One of those students uh, is a freshman uh, at Santa Clara University in California, in the Bay Area. Um, and I, as she was visiting with me, Riley was telling me a, a good bit about her experience there, uh, which w- was rather intriguing because when she was setting sail to, to head out to her college years, she had posted uh, pictures of herself on her Instagram account uh, showing a Santa Clara sweatshirt uh, and commenting home for the next four years. And then when she came back at Thanksgiving, She mentioned how Santa Clara just isn't for her, that after this school year she's going to transfer because it's different than what she found. The values uh, at that school clash tremendously with with where she is, and so she's looking for elsewhere, which can can be usual at times. Um, But it's rather intriguing because initially, going into her college years, Riley had absolute clarity and certainty. And then reality of her college experience there threw her a curve. Now, that seems like a paradox. That sounds like an apparent contradiction. You're so certain, and now you're so, uh, you're looking around at other options. But that's not just a reality for college freshmen, but followers of Jesus face this as a street-level scenario in the life of the believer. And our psalm uh, this morning, Psalm 27, which you can find on pages 8 and 9 of your bulletin, uh, lays this out. Uh, David, uh, with with such uh, bracing transparency and astonishing honesty, just puts that out there in this psalm. I was talking to Ben uh, last week about uh, about pre- preparing for this, and, and we both agreed it's kind of like a whiplash psalm, uh, where the first half is going great, then all of a sudden you get lassoed into um, a, a different experience. Uh, the first half seems wonderful. The second half, uh, you, you feel like the, everything is going wrong. But we, we need to listen to the teaching of this psalm and what it is trying to press upon the heart's of believers uh, here today in our age. And that is to embrace this truth, that we can trust God in the midst of all of our circumstances. So the question is, what circumstances does this psalm unearth? Well, in verses 1 through 6, Uh, I I think that David is demonstrating that we can trust God in the confidence that we enjoy. Uh, Verse 1, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
the Lord is the stronghold of my life. And, and so he, he recognizes, based on those realities, says, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, th- there is clarity there. He knows that God is there and will rescue him, and that God is someone that he can trust as a result. Uh, it, and it even uh, gets grander in verse 2. When evildoers assail me, he says, that's the reality. They're, they're coming after me to eat up my flesh, my adversary and foes. It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, I will be confident. And what is implied there is God is going to take care of pulverizing all that would rise up against his child. So there is security. There is confidence. And then in verse 4, it's almost as if the text narrows to a very high level of priority. One thing David says, have I asked of the Lord? That will I seek after. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Uh, he's, He's celebrating the access that a follower of Almighty God has to our Redeemer in worship. For one thing, We make it a priority, he says. One thing have I asked of the Lord. This is at the top of the list. There is also the matter of position, that we may dwell in the house of the Lord uh, all the days of our life, and also the pleasure we, we receive from that, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord as well. And he returns to the idea of protection from danger. He will hide me in his shelter, verse 5, in the day of trouble. He will conceal me. He will lift me up high. The security that we enjoy. Notice the high level of confidence that is oozing out of the text here. All of which leads to verse 6. Now my head shall be lifted up. Uh, Above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. We worship as a response to this clarity, to this rescue, to this trust that God gives. This is that worship is an expression of the confidence that we enjoy in our Redeemer. So this is a cumulative case that David seems to be building here, isn't it? Look at all God does. He gives us clarity with his light, rescue with his salvation, trust with him being a stronghold, security in hiding and concealing and protecting us, confidence through the willingness to do this over and over again, and joy in the access we have to him in the privilege of worship. And I would say... That, that is something that we should not put by the wayside. Sometimes it seems like a very, very small thing. Anytime that God's people gather in worship, because it seems like we hear, we're here, we gather, we sing, we read scripture together, we hear the word preached, we go out into the world, and sometimes people might look at that and say, in the large scheme of things, that seems so little. But number one, that is how God is at work in this world. 
but by, by we receiving him and coming before him and declaring his word. This is part of God's subversive work in reclaiming his creation. That is one thing. But there, there's another assumption made here in this placement of worship. And the confidence that we receive is one thing. There is the priority of worship that our encounter with the triune God, Sunday in and Sunday out, whenever the Lord's people gather together in worship, that is what fortifies us for life's experiences when they grow rugged, when they grow rocky, and when our confidence slips or tumbles. Or smashes. It's one thing that I preach often to my students is the necessity of breakfast, a really good breakfast, a cooked breakfast. I mean, scrambled eggs or uh, and ham, uh, proteins, uh, a few carbs, but a lot of fruit, and, and sometimes even to inspire them, I will take pictures of my breakfast and bring it to school on my phone and show them this is what you are missing out on every day if you just roll out of bed at 7.30, grab a Pop-Tart, and nibble on it on the way to school to get here in a rush. You, you are not strengthening yourself to face... What you do that day, you need to slow down and you need to prioritize what fortifies you. What is going to, David speaks of the confidence here that we enjoy, but that confidence is strengthened through what we do together in worship. But coming to the, the larger swath of things, there are some questions we can ask ourselves. Is that a confidence that you enjoy in your Lord and Savior? Do you meditate often? Do you take inventory of his rescue and his kindness, his deliverance, his protection of you? What is your response to the blessings of God, to the ordinary ones as well as the grandiose ones? What's your response to those actions of God in your life? in the lives of others. What do you do with the confidence you enjoy? Do you exhibit that ongoing trust? Well, that's the, the good part of the psalm. Then we kind of uh, come into a very, what we might say, dark territory. Uh, because the oxygen seems to get sucked out of the room. Uh, in verses 7 through 12. But nonetheless, I think David is pressing upon us through the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit, that we can trust God in the desperation that we face. Um, just uh, the, the life as a follower of Jesus can be incredibly grinding and hard. And there are a number of us that are going through especially trying times. Uh, and so as maybe as we were reading this responsibly, as you were going through 7 through 12, you're like, yep, I feel that. I completely get that. That is where I am right now. So what, what is it that David offers to readers today through this psalm? He says, hear, O Lord. It, it's, it, it goes from declarations to the people of God to cries toward God himself. 
He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Those are entreaties, but they are couched in imperatives. He's saying, God, wake up. I'm in trouble. Don't you see this? I recognize, and we would say, God is all-knowing, all-present. Of course, God sees. But sometimes, can can we agree that the, the crunch of everyday life and the desperations that we face and the anxieties that inhabit us can cause the truth of who God is to grow dim? Yeah, uh, as as we go on, verse eight. You have said, "Seek my face." My heart says to you, "Your face, Lord, do I seek?" I'm trying, but something. What's implied here is David is saying something seems way, way, way off, and he's not many verses past the confidence that we enjoy. And it gets worse, if you can imagine that, in verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not. He is worried. Absolutely shaken and worried about losing God's delight, God's pleasure, and God's presence. That can be absolutely frightening. And what I think is most chilling and honest about this is that none of what is in verse 9 is posed as a hypothetical. They are posed as imperatives. Like David is saying, this is a very real thing that I think could happen. And I can't make heads or tails of that. And even when he is assured of God's presence in verse 10, the Lord will take me in, it's twinned with the reality of the rejection in human relationships. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. There is the loss of family ties, he said, that can be a reality when you are devoted to the Lord. And so he comes back, wanting in verse 11, wanting to recapture what he received in verse 1. Uh, He says, teach me your way. Well, you're saying, but you just said the Lord is my light. Yeah, but you, you do know how quickly the Christian life can change on a dime. And I think there's, there's, there's no doubt that's why David is putting this forth as he does. He says, lead me on a level path. But you just said he's your salvation. He, 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 gives, you, uh, he gives you that trustworthy direction. It's almost like David says, yes, but you have to recapture that sense. Because of the circumstances in your life. And, and he says, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Oh, but... David, in verse 1, you said, The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Why are you afraid now? Now, I'm not getting, uh, I'm not putting all that before you to deny the trustworthy nature of Scripture. That's none of that. I'm just putting that before you to say that Scripture, and especially the Psalms, okay, I, I think the Psalms are just an absolute treasure chamber of the experience of the Christian life. And that is because they are so honest. I mean, it looks at life 
and puts it back out there unvarnished. This is what life is like for those who are believers. And so this might be disturbing to many people. Some people might like verses 1 through 6 and run from 7 through 12, especially when they're writing new praise and worship songs. Okay? Uh, So this might be disturbing to many people where we have two experiences side by side, so different in such stark fashion. Why does David, we may ask, present the life of a believer in this way? Why does God allow this to be spoken forth in his holy word to show this as the life of the believer? And the answer is, because the life of a believer can be this way. God speaking by the Holy Spirit through his servant David, is being unquestionably, forthrightly, and I would argue with great kindness. Isn't it good to have a God who lets you know what could be coming? Even It's almost another paradox. He doesn't keep you in the dark about the fact you're going to go through the dark. Isn't that, that, that's just an amazing God. And it shows that life as a follower of Jesus in any age, it's not 100% happy clappy, nor is it always 24-7-365 in the depths of despair, but it is a mix of both. And you're like, why would, why would God say that? The answer is because it's True, and he wants you to know that. There's a legend, one of many, in, uh, on the Davis side of my family, and through a lot of research uh, and, and checking, um, I've pretty much discovered that 98% of our family legends are true. So I have no reason not to uh, discount this story. But it happened, this is well before my father was born, um, uh, my, my grandparents, Grandma and Grandpa Davis, were invited over for dinner, I, I believe one day, in, in the home of another couple. And uh, at, at this point, uh, Grandma and Grandpa had just had, I think, um, a, a, at least uh, among children who were talking, uh, Walt and Glenn were the two oldest. And um, Grandpa was in conversation with, with, the, with the other husband, but as Grandpa usually did, he had an ear out for another other conversations, and it was the one that the other wife was having with little Walt and little Glenn. And she said to Walt, now Walt, you like me, don't you? Dangerous thing to say to a little kid. Um, and Walt said, no. No, I don't like you. And so she was taken aback, but trying to recover herself, she thought, well, maybe I can split the difference and get 50% here. Uh, Glenn, you like me, don't you? And Glenn looked at her and said, no, I don't like you either. Now, in terms of social conventions, in terms of etiquette, uh, a number of us might be aghast at that. Grandpa never disciplined Walton Glenn. He never spoke a disparaging word, never said, you shouldn't have said that. He didn't spank them, nothing. And he even gave a reason. 
my boys told the truth. Why would I punish them for telling the truth? Now, that's not an example of, I don't put that forth as an example of parenting. Okay? But, but, but to make the larger points that we should not disparage God for telling the truth about what is and what is to come. If God is that honest about not only the peaks of the Christian life, but the valleys of your everyday existence, the mountaintops and the ravines, then He is a God who, in whom you can place your trust because He's honest with you. We see the same thing in Isaiah 43, verse 2. Where, Isaiah, uh, where, where, where God is saying through Isaiah, uh, though you go through the deep waters, the waves will not sweep over you. You will go through fire, but you will not be burned. Where God promises protection and confidence. But He also says difficult times are coming. And you have both of them. Isn't God good that He lets us know with such authentic honesty. And it doesn't take away the distress that you experience. It doesn't take away the discouragement that I go through. It doesn't remove the desperation that overwhelms us. What it does do, though, is it puts the slab of concrete at the bottom of your life. That God makes clear that things will seem screwy at times. And your faith may grow dim, and you'll want to bang your head and maybe give up. But if God lets us know that in advance, He's also letting us know that He is the God who will be with us. And so we should consider, hmm, maybe that's a God in whom I can place my trust. And I believe that's where God is taking us in this psalm, all the way to verses 13 and 14. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe. I trust. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I believe. Wait. Be strong. Take courage. And you notice, at the time we get to the end of the psalm, nothing is necessarily solved. <laughs> it may still be a gigantic mess, but we have the opportunity to wait and hope. When all else fails, when I feel forsaken, I throw myself upon the Savior who cried out before dying on a blood-stained, rough-hewn cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What David wonders about in verse 9, Jesus took upon himself as God's provision. There's a, some of us may be familiar with the story of Job. In the Old Testament, Job was, in all, uh, by all vantage points, a very righteous, a very godly man. And uh, the, the, the story is more interesting than I can make it in 20 seconds, but um, he didn't deserve it. 
uh, and uh, it was allowed for, for Satan, the, the devil, to attack him, and he basically lost everything, horribly ill, um, and, and it's, it's just a train wreck for a very godly believer. One of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, picks up on this idea in his book, Where is God When It Hurts?, which I would just basically commend to anybody. In fact, beyond commend, if you don't have it, go on Amazon and buy it uh, this afternoon. Uh, that's about as close to an order as I can give from the pulpit. Uh, but, but, uh, but Yancey says this, and, and I think it really twins with, um, with the teaching of Psalm 27 today. Uh, he says, God wants us to love him, even when that choice involves pain, because we are committed to him and not to our own good feelings and rewards. He wants us to cling to him even when we have every reason to deny him hotly. And he says, uh, about, he, he goes back to Job, was Job being faithful simply because God had allowed him a prosperous life? Job's fiery trials proved the answer beyond doubt. Job clung to God's justice when he was the best example in history of God's apparent injustice. And here's the clincher. He did not seek the giver because of the gifts. When all gifts were removed, he still sought the giver. If there's a place this psalm takes us, it's here. God doesn't want your calculations or my assessments or our cost-benefit analysis of where our faith is taking us. God wants your trust. God wants you to place yourself place myself in the sure, strong, nail-scarred hands of Jesus himself, his Son. May that be the prayer of our hearts today. Amen. Truly, Lord God, the path of redemption is the path of paradox. But in all times, in triumph and tears, you are with us. In the words of the hymn, when other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, Lord, abide with me. Strengthen us to wait on you, to take courage in you, and to embrace you and find that in all things, you have been embracing us all along. In the name of Christ, we make our prayer. Amen.